0: I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy." Millions have read those scriptures, millions are familiar with the beast. There are so many tracts, pamphlets, books, video and audio tapes out about the meaning of the beast. Some people think the beast is Saddam Hussein. Some people think it's the United States of America. Some people think it is Russia. Some people think it is some other nation. Some people think that it is a Jewish economic or financial conspiracy. People think all sorts of things, but the Bible is very, very clear about what really is the beast of the apocalypse. It goes on to say, And they worship the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? That's Revelation 13.4. It then says in Revelation nineteen twenty, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, these both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. If a false prophet is a man, and he is, he is the Antichrist, the false prophet, and if he is seized by Jesus Christ at his second coming, and if he is working in collusion with the beast, then the beast is a man the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet, and these both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone, Revelation 19.20. Anciently, however, because king stood for kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar was a type of the kingdom of Babylon, the beast appeared as something so powerful and so gigantic that it is not only the man who was at the helm, but it is the system, the military, the economic the political system that is literally worshipped because of its vast power, something that essays to fight the returning, conquering Christ at his coming. And that's obviously a political, economic, and military power that exists at the very time of the end. But who and where? The prophet Daniel saw at first a monster that he said in Daniel 7, 7, devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. Then John saw it at the end of the first century, a seven-headed, ten-horned monster rising from the sea, blaspheming God and making war against the saints. What is the beast? Where did it first plant its feet? Where did it go? I want you to follow along with me from the annals of history and from the pages of Bible prophecy, the tracks of the beast, and come to understand its frightening prophetic significance for our time. The beast that John saw in vision seemed to rise out of an ocean. It had seven heads and ten horns. The horns featured ten crowns, while the heads were decorated with names which are blasphemous in God's sight. John said, quote, and the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, that is the body and overall characteristics reminded him of a leopard. And his feet were as the feet of a bear. Strange feet indeed for a leopard-like creature, aren't they? And his mouth as the mouth of a lion and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. John wrote what he saw, and that was in Revelation 13, verses 1 and 2. But John didn't comprehend the meaning. He was like a reporter or a biographer, faithfully recounting what he saw in vision. A strange creature indeed, terrible in aspect, threatening and powerful. The power and authority from this many-headed, many-horned, composite creature came from a dragon. Now what is meant by a dragon? Well, as you know, dragons are purely mythological creatures. They remind one of serpentine monsters with huge bat-like wings, fierce heads with blazing snake-like eyes, heavy clawed feet like those of a crocodile, rows of wickedly gleaming sharply pointed teeth breathing roaring tongues of fire from their mouths. But we don't need to speculate about what is meant by the dragon that empowers the beast because the Bible plainly tells us what it is in Revelation 12:7 through 9. It says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So we understand immediately what is the dragon. It is a type or a symbol of Satan the devil. Jesus Christ said in Luke 10:18, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 and Ephesians 2, 2. He is called the God of this world who influences heads of state and leaders of false counterfeit religions. He's called in 1 Peter 5, 8, a roaring lion who walks about seeking whom he may devour. He is called the accuser of the brethren. He is called a a polyon. He is the devil. The many-headed ten-horned beast is empowered then and guided by Satan. And as such, it is anti-Christ. It is anti-God. It is anti-law. It is a system that is against his holy days, his Sabbath days, and viciously, hatefully against his people called the saints. It is against those who would perform God's work on this earth. It is against the work of God. Why did it look like a leopard? And why were its feet like those of a bear and its head like that of a lion? For centuries, Bible scholars have known that the prophecies of Daniel and those of John and the Apocalypse are inseparable and that one interprets the other. There may be any number of books that are called like Daniel and the Revelation and Revelation in the light of Daniel and so on. Many Bible scholars understand that. Many of the writers of the commentaries like Jameson Fawcett and Brown in the experimental and critical a commentary. They understand that. So many other people do. To trace the tracks of the beast from the time it first stood upon the earth until the time of the end when it is said to make war with the saints and to fight Christ at his return, we've got to know what God revealed to Daniel. Daniel, together with three royal princes of the throne of Judah, were taken captive when Jerusalem fell to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And who isn't familiar with the story of Daniel in the lion's den? We were all told that as little children. The book of Daniel contains lengthy pronouncements from Nebuchadnezzar himself, who not only fulfilled the prophecy of the first beast, but is symbolic of the whole system of pagan gentile kingdoms under Satan called Babylon the Great in Revelation 17 and verse 5. It's pictured as in collusion with a great false religious system that is called the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth so there is a great mother church that has daughters that came out of her protesting daniel's prophecy also contains a lengthy announcement from an heavenly messenger an archangel in chapters 11 and 12 actual first person quotations in that entire 11th chapter really from an archangel of god the first chapter relates daniel's capture his condition in captivity and tells us God had given Daniel and the three princes knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams Daniel 117. And the second chapter tells us about Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Daniel was not only given in vision by God the dream and the interpretation. He understood the dream, but isn't this absolutely amazing? Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, refused to tell the dream to his own astrologers and stargazers, demanded that they read his mind and not only tell him what he dreamed, but tell him the meaning of it. And God gave all of that to Daniel. He said to Nebuchadnezzar, Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image, and this is in Daniel 2, 31-35. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible, that is, awesome and overpowering, is what that means. The image's head was of fine gold, his breast and arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them in pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold, all of the various parts of that great image that he saw as if a gigantic man standing in the plain there in the the area of modern-day Iraq between the Tigris and Euphrates River. And they were all broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. To Nebuchadnezzar that image towered into the sky. It was a brilliant reflection of gold, silver, and brass. And like a comet falling, a stone then seemed to smash into the feet of that mixed iron and clay on the toes of the image. As the image collapsed, the iron, the brass, the silver, the gold seemed to completely disintegrate, be absolutely rendered into powder and dust. The wind blew, and the particles of dust-like metal were whisked away in his dream. Then Nebuchadnezzar's astonished mind seemed to see the stone that had smashed into those feet grow and grow and kept growing larger and larger until it seemed to literally fill the whole earth. And no wonder the Babylonian king was astonished, and no wonder he was overcome with eager curiosity to learn what such a vision could mean. Daniel said, This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation before the king. Thou, O king, this is Daniel 2, 36-38, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beast of the field and the fowls of the heaven has he given into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. Several important points to note here. One, it was the great creator, ruler God, who had allowed Nebuchadnezzar to become a king of kings, allowed him to subjugate many other surrounding nations and take their peoples captive and loot their treasuries and completely loot their lands. He forced many other governments all around him in the known world at that time, in what we think of as the Middle East, the Near East, and the Mediterranean area, to bow to his will. Daniel told this Babylonian king that it was God who decided the course of world events and who set up for deposed rulers. Now, two, Nebuchadnezzar was the first real world dictator because Daniel acknowledged that he ruled over the known inhabited earth. Three, Nebuchadnezzar was that head of gold which meant that as a king he stood for and represented the Babylonian kingdom. Notice the proof in verse 39, And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass which shall bear rule over all the earth. So king and kingdom are synonymous. The fourth point, Babylon epitomizes the beast power down through history. Babylon is still... In the book of Revelation, in the 17th chapter mentioned as Babylon the Great, it is not only the great mystery religion that is called Babylonish confusion that has deceived the world because everything seems to be a vague mystery, but even in the book of Revelation, many centuries after ancient Babylon had been toppled by the Persian Empire, many centuries after it had lain for absolute abandoned rubble, John in his prophecy says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and repeats it twice to indicate that God has labeled an end-time system that will be extant and will hold sway over the earth in its both religious and military power at the time of the end when Jesus Christ arrives. Now, yes, there was ancient Babylon, the ancient Babylonian empire, far, far, far back before the time of Christ but it also was used as a type of the end-time resurrection of the Holy Roman Empire, and is called Babylon the Great in the book of Revelation. So it epitomizes or symbolizes the beast power all the way down through history. The mystery religion of Babylon that was handed down from Nimrod and his mother, wife, Semiramis continues down through history, masquerading as the one true church which controls the political and military power of the end-time beast. The fifth major point to notice, the apocalypse predicts that the final union of church-state which will fight Christ at His coming will be like an end-time Babylon. The woman, or the false church that sits on the beast, is called Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. Notice that carefully. She is a false church. She indulges in mystery. She makes religion to be a mystery. She makes out God to be a mystery, an unfathomable mystery. But it's a system of Babylon, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, so their little harlot daughters that she had, and abominations of the earth. The sixth point to remember ancient Babylon was destroyed. Today, you can go, if you want to risk it, going to near Baghdad over there to Iran, and you can actually see the ruins of ancient Babylon. They're still there, as you well know. Yet the Apocalypse says that the great city which represents the end-time beast power and the false church is nevertheless called Babylon. If you look at Revelation eighteen, one through 10, it says, and I quote, I saw another angel come down from heaven, and skipping along here to read the gist of this, he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. So it repeats it twice and is become the habitation of devils, meaning demons, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her, standing afar off with the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city! For in one hour is thy judgment come. Revelation 18:1 to 10 Remember again that John wrote that centuries after ancient Babylon had fallen. So he is predicting in the end time that system will have the label of ancient Babylon confusion, mystery, the mother of harlots and the abominations of fear. When John received these prophecies, that ancient city had already lain in ruin for 639 years approximately, so the prophecy couldn't refer to ancient ruins, but to an end time modern city a modern system, a modern socio-economic, political, and military system, which is called the seat of the beast, or the capital city of the beast, which is ridden, meaning controlled, directed, by the mother of harlots, arrayed in scarlet. Thus, though Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar was the first of the four great world ruling empires, the name of Babylon is permanently stamped upon the whole system until the time of the second coming of Christ." After predicting another kingdom inferior to Babylon, which was the Medo-Persian Empire, and yet a third kingdom of brass, the Greco-Macedonian Empire under Alexander, Daniel then described the fourth kingdom, which was Rome. And I quote, And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as, much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdues all things, and as iron that breaks all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as you saw the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toads of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken, or as the margin says, weak. And whereas you saw iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. You and I both know if you were pouring into a mold molten iron, and you poured clay in it, it would be a terrible mixture. The clay would crack and fall apart, and the iron would have all the pockets in it, and it would not last at long, as this prophecy says. And in the days of these kings, important point, the final ten kings pictured by the toes. We already read that in Daniel 2, that the mountain that became Christ's kingdom smashed the image on its toes, of which there are ten. In the days of these kings, that is the final ten kings, as pictured by the toes, compare that with Revelation 17, 12 to 14. Shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Daniel 2, 31 to 44. Obviously, though it was uttered thousands of years ago, This prophecy shows us there will be an end-time combine of ten nations represented by the ten toes of the great image, and also represented by the ten horns on the beast of Revelation the 17th chapter, verses 12 through 14. It will be smashed into oblivion by the returning, conquering Christ. It is called Babylon the Great in the Apocalypse. Yet, it is the end-time resurrection of what became the Holy Roman Empire, which will consist of ten nations. If you had no other passage available to you in the entirety of the Bible but Revelation 17, 12 through 14, you would have an immense amount of information about what to look for in the time of the end, which great power, how many of them will there be, What will they do? You would have a great deal of information by just looking at Revelation 17, 12 through 14, which says, and I quote, And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings. Those ten toes represent ten kings. The ten horns represent ten kings. In Daniel 2, the rock represents Christ. It smites the image on the feet. Ten toes, ten kings. Here in Revelation 17 and 12, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet but receive power as kings one hour, a very short time in biblical prophecy, with the beast. These have one mind. That means they're in agreement. They have one purpose, one policy. And they shall give their power and their strength unto the beast. What is the power and the strength of a king? It's absolute power. It's the power of his raw materials, the power of his economy, the power of all of his people and population, the power of his army. They shall give their strength and their power unto the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb. So they exist at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Ten of them, in collusion, united, one mind, pooling their power and their strength. The beast, then, at the time of the end, is a ten-nation combine. It is a supranational power ruled over by a super dictator with ten lesser kings, each of them over his own nation, but pooling their sovereignty, giving all of their power into one coalition of governments beneath a super dictator called the beast, who works in collusion with the false prophet. These, it says in verse 14, shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Jesus said many are called and few are chosen. Are you one of the chosen? Are you one of the very elect? And are you, if you are one of the very elect whom Satan cannot deceive? are you also faithful? Are you one who sticks it out? Are you one who stays with it? Are you one who never quits and never gives up? no matter what the obstacles, what the torment, what satanic deviltry is laid out there to try to ensnare and to entrap you, no matter what kind of persecution, no matter, no matter what kind of terrible things Satan the devil lays upon the people of God, if they are called and chosen and faithful, they're going to be with Jesus Christ. They're going to be resurrected if they are dead. They're going to be changed instantaneously if they are alive at the moment of his second coming. Read 1 Corinthians 15, 50-52. Again, then, to repeat briefly, if all you had in the entirety of your Bible and you knew that it was the Word of God is Revelation 17, 12 through 14, you would know that the beast power of the end time is a ten-nation combine that is going to fight Christ at His second coming. Now let's come to understand Daniel's important seventh chapter with his depiction of these same world-ruling kingdoms as beasts. Three of them, known creatures, the fourth a surrealistic, satanic-looking creature like no living animal. And those remarkable prophecies, including Daniel's God-given interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, were uttered and later written long prior to 538 B.C., the time of the collapse of the Babylonian Empire. As the centuries passed, it became clear. As a result of the rise and fall of city-states, nations, and empires, what was meant by the kingdoms of silver, brass, and of iron and clay, and many of the Bible commentators know that. Many of the Bible handbooks list it. It is not some private interpretation of mine or my father, Herbert W. Armstrong, before me. It is known by many, many other church organizations and religious organizations and written in many a religious book. First, God revealed to Daniel the meaning of the king's dream. Later, God gave Daniel a dream which he carefully wrote down and which forms his seventh chapter. This was during the reign of Belshazzar, nearing the end of the Babylonian supremacy. Daniel 7, 1-7 In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven strove upon the great sea, and the four beasts came up out of the sea, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second, like a bear. And it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another, like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given unto it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it and was diverse from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. We just saw that in Revelation 17, 12 through 14. And as we shall see, the end-time beast of the apocalypse, the beast of Revelation, portrayed in Revelation 13, 1 and 2, embodied all the strongest characteristics of these beasts of Daniel 7, and represents the culmination of all the Gentile world-ruling kingdoms, governments that have been ruled by men with minds like that of a wild animal. Look at Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, and a modern example in Saddam Hussein. The first beast, like a lion with eagle's wings, which was made stand upon the feet as a man, and which had a man's heart given unto it, represented Nebuchadnezzar, at the head of the first world-ruling empire in history, Babylon. The details of the seven years of Nebuchadnezzar's insanity are given in Daniel's fourth chapter. He became completely crazy and insane. The Bible says in verse 33 of Daniel 4, And he was driven from men, and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hairs were grown like eagles' feathers, and his nails like bird's claws. For seven long years this man, who had been a powerful war-making king, lived like a savage animal, probably in an enclosed yard somewhere on the temple or the palace grounds, his beard and his hair no doubt matted with filth. At the end of those seven years, his reason was returned to him by a miracle from God. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, he wrote in verses 34 to 37, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. Most people don't know that Nebuchadnezzar wrote a part of the Bible, But he did. And he went on to say, His kingdom is from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me. And my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven, all whose works are truth, and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. Daniel four thirty four to 37 You know, Nebuchadnezzar knew a lot more than many people do today, didn't he? He knows a lot more than the millions upon millions of people in China, Southeast Asia, India, Bangladesh, and so many other nations, because he knows that God is the ruler, that He is the Most High God, that he sets up and deposes kings, and that no one can thwart his will. Nebuchadnezzar's insanity is a type of the infamous times of the Gentiles, during which God would allow powerful pagan kingdoms to be ruled by men with minds like wild, rapacious, predatory beasts. There are many infamous examples in history. Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, Alexander, the Caesars of Rome, many of them, Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin, Today we can think, as I said, of despots like Saddam Hussein or Muammar Gaddafi or Pol Pot or Ho Chi Minh and other people like Kim Il Sung. There are dozens of other lesser-known examples, by the way, in history, like Antiochus Epiphanes and Leomodon and Ptolemy Soter and Seleucus Nicator, and many other vicious, vicious leaders who murdered literally hundreds of thousands of people. Men like this implemented pogroms. They committed mass deportation, slave labor, mass murder, genocide. They destroyed cities, villages, homes, and farms. They deported helpless civilians. They raped and pillaged, burnt and destroyed, plundered and looted. And the Bible describes they were more like beasts of the jungle than humane, civilized, caring human beings. The beast all the way down from the time of Nebuchadnezzar and his insanity depicts that period of time His seven years' insanity depicts the entire times of the Gentiles, and that was ancient Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, the first beast, and there were four world-ruling empires that were depicted as beasts, and the fourth was to have many successive revivals and collapses, and eventually to have an end-time revival to consist of ten nations under one super-dictator who will fight Christ at his second coming. Now the second beast was like a bear. The Babylonian Empire was destroyed by Persian armies under Cyrus, probably in about October 538 BC. Now the second kingdom, represented by the chest and arms of silver in the great image, and by a bear, you see in Daniel 7, 5, ruled over the known world. This was the kingdom of Medo-Persia, ruled by Cyrus the Great. Cyrus dated his years from 538 BC, and he called himself the King of Babylon and King of the Countries, meaning to him, King of the World. The remarkable prophecies of Isaiah's 44th and 45th chapters were written about 150 years before Cyrus was born. Get this, and yet they mention him by name. Look at Isaiah 45, 1 to 6. In those two chapters, Cyrus was predicted to set the Jews free to rebuild the temple, and yet the temple had not yet been destroyed when Isaiah wrote those prophecies. History positively confirms those astonishing prophecies because it was Cyrus who allowed the captive Jews in Babylon who had been taken there by Nebuchadnezzar to return to Palestine. Josephus, the famed Jewish historian, wrote this. This is from Antiquities of the Jews, book 11, page 300. In the first year of the reign of Cyrus, which was the 70th from the day that our people were removed out of their own land into Babylon, God commiserated the captivity and calamity of these poor people according as he had foretold to them by Jeremiah the prophet before the destruction of the city. Josephus then goes on to quote a letter from Cyrus to Sissanese and Sathrabazines, in which we find preserved the statements of Cyrus himself. Now here's a quote from Cyrus, I have given leave to as many of the Jews as dwell in my country as pleased to return to their own country and to rebuild their city, and to build the temple of God at Jerusalem on the same place where it was before. I have also sent my treasurer, Mithridates, and Zorobabel, the governor of the Jews, that they may lay the foundations of the temple, and may build it sixty cubits high, and of the same latitude, making three edifices of polystones and one of the wood of the country, the same order extends to the altar whereupon they offer sacrifices to God. End of quote from Cyrus of ancient Persia himself. Artaxerxes, who ruled over the Persian Empire after the death of Cyrus, issued two decrees using similar language, and this was during the days of Ezra and, Zah- and Nehemiah. The decrees to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple help explain, by the way, the famous 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. As Halley's Bible Handbook says, the date from which the 70 weeks, that is, 70 weeks of years, or 77s of years, or 490 years, was to be counted was the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. There were three decrees issued by Persian kings for this purpose. The principal one, Halley says, was in 457 B.C. He then explains that the 70 weeks is subdivided into 7 weeks, 62 weeks, and 1 week. It is difficult to see the application of the 7 weeks, perhaps, but the 69 weeks, including the 7, equal 483 days. That is, on the year-day theory, and that, I think, is absolutely substantiated in Ezekiel 4.6 which is the commonly accepted interpretation, which makes it 483 years. But Halley then makes the mistake of forgetting to add one year in his calculations because there is no year labeled zero. And when you are trying to calculate coming from B.C. to A.D., you've got one year on your calendar labeled 1 A.D. and a year labeled 1 B.C. And unless you add one year, your calculations will automatically omit that additional year and you'll be off by one year. Coming forward from 457 BC, subtracting 457 from 483 years, you have 26 years, but that's incorrect by one year and you have to add one. The missing year brings us to 27 AD, which is the true date for the beginning of the ministry of the Messiah, or as the Bible said, the coming of the anointed one. Ali goes on to say further, Within three and one half years, Jesus was crucified, that is, in the midst of the one week. The Anointed One was cut off, purged away sin, and brought in everlasting righteousness. To understand that correct date, by the way, is vitally important because it was only in 31 A.D., exactly three and one half years after the beginning of Christ's ministry, in the autumn of 27 A.D., that the Passover of the 14th of Nisan fell on a Wednesday evening with the first day of unleavened bread, the high day Sabbath that you read of in John 19.31, falling on our Thursday. The Messiah was to be cut off in the midst of the week. He was, in two senses, he was cut off in the midst of the week. He was crucified on a Wednesday, not a Friday, and was to be precisely three days and three nights in the tomb, Matthew 12.40. He was resurrected on a late Sabbath afternoon which is why the Bible says in Matthew 28, 1, while it was yet dark, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, they came and they found the tomb was already empty. He had risen before that time, while it was yet dark, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. And by the way, you ought to write for a very important free booklet entitled The Passover. Is it for Christians that will give you a complete historical perspective on that, including a virtual day-by-day a chronicling of the last days of Jesus' life on this earth and all the events surrounding his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Now, Christ also, in a second sense, was cut off after a three-and-one-half-year ministry. Out of a prophesied seven-year ministry, the second half of his ministry may be indicated as waiting to be fulfilled in Isaiah 66:19. Halley's continues, and I quote, Thus Daniel foretold not only the time at which the Messiah would appear, but also the duration of his public ministry and his atoning death for human sin. That's on Halley's page 349. One of the great proofs that there is a God is not only that the creator demands that the creation rather demands a creator, and that design demands a designer, and that life demands a life giver, and the sustaining forces and energies demand a sustainer. It is also fulfilled prophecy. Daniel, who lived during the reigns of perhaps five Babylonian kings, was inspired to foretell the collapse of Babylon, the rise of Medo-Persia, the collapse of that empire, the rise then of the Greco-Macedonian kingdom of Alexander the Great, its disintegration into four separate kingdoms, that happened, then the rise of the Roman Empire with its many successive kingdoms, down through history until our modern times. And it's all happened over the course of many, many centuries, yet there it is in the Bible in the second chapter, the fourth chapter, the seventh chapter, the eleventh chapter, and the twelfth chapter, as well as others of the book of Daniel, corroborated and fitting like a glove, fitting like the cogs of a wheel perfectly together with the revelation of John, especially chapters 13 and 17. Halley's Bible handbook says of the four beasts of Daniel's seventh chapter, quote, This is a continuation of the prophecy of chapter 2, which was uttered sixty years earlier. Two aspects of the grand scheme of history, four world empires, and then the kingdom of God. In chapter 2, these are represented by an image with a head of gold, a breast of silver, thighs of brass, and feet of iron, broken in pieces by a stone. In this chapter, chapter 7, these same world empires are represented by a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a terrible beast. These four world empires are commonly taken to be Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, representing the period from Daniel to Christ. These beasts seem to form the basis of the imagery of the seven-headed, ten-horned beast of Revelation 13, Halley's, page 346. As I said before, this is not the private view of one small church or one Sabbath-keeping organization. It is something that is understood and known by many of the Bible commentators and Bible scholars and has been understood for many a decade. Now the third beast that was like a leopard that had four wings of a fowl on its back represented Alexander's Greco-Macedonian empire. A tremendous amount of literature exists about the time of Alexander. A person could actually devote his entire life to studying Alexander the Great and probably never emerge from the wealth of material available. Alexander was a student of Aristotle. He was the son of Philip of Macedon, and his mother, who was named Olympus, was reportedly a, quote, woman of wild, half-blood, weird, visionary, and terrible. A careful study of this infamous man's life helps us understand, in part, what strange influences may have driven him to do what he did. Alexander conquered the known world, leading his Greek, Macedonian, Spartan, and other troops into the faraway lands of modern-day Iraq and Iran, into India, through Palestine into Egypt, of course, where the city now known as Alexandria was established by him and uh, named after him because he is the one who actually established a a village or a city there. He was completely fearless. He once leapt over the walls of a hostile village filled with barbarous forces with only three of his men suffering nearly fatal wounds as a result. Alexander besieged Tyre for seven long months. When the city fell after Alexander had built a causeway to breach its sea-bound walls, he utterly destroyed it. And as the Encyclopedia Britannica 11th edition, volume 1, page 547 says, he, quote, had the old Tyrian people scattered to the winds, 30,000 sold as slaves. Early in the siege of Tyre, Sanballat, Manasseh's father-in-law, gathered 7,000 of his subjects in Samaria, who had earlier professed loyalty to Darius, Darius the Mede, and approached Alexander. He argued that it would be to Alexander's advantage to have the strength of the Jews divided into two parts and urged him to build a temple on Mount Gerizim, the highest point in Samaria, near Sikkim. Shortly later, Alexander granted that request. And after the fall of Tyre, Alexander marched on Gaza. Then he turned toward Jerusalem. Here is something that is really incredible. It's out of the Antiquities of the Jews, Josephus, that is, Book 11, chapter 11, uh, and then section 8, page 325. This is really incredible. Josephus wrote, and I quote, For Alexander, when he saw the multitude at a distance in white garments, while the priest stood clothed with fine linen, and the high priest in purple and scarlet clothing, with his mitre on his head, having a golden plate whereupon the name of God was engraved, he approached by himself, and adored that name, and first saluted the high priest. But you know what is amazing? The high priest, whose name was Jadua, was terrified. He ordered the people to make supplications, to pray, to fast, to offer sacrifice to God so that God would spare them in the city because he knew Alexander was approaching. After he had done all of that, and the people very fearfully joined in, and he had offered sacrifice, he, the high priest in Jerusalem, Jadua, had a vivid dream in which he saw himself and the priest opening the city, decorating it, and actually advancing to meet the Macedonian general general in their priestly robes. And then you see that Alexander did exactly that. Well, his army was displeased. Among them were Phoenicians and Chaldeans, as well as other races. Alexander's highest officer and personal aide, Parmenio, approached him and said, How is it that when all adore you, you adore the high priest of the Jews? Alexander replied, I did not adore him, but that God, who has honored him with his high priesthood, for this very person I saw in a dream, in this very habit, when I was at Dios in Macedonia, who, when I was considering with myself how I might obtain the dominion of Asia, exhorted me to make no delay, but to boldly pass over the sea thither, for that he would conduct my army, and would give, give me the dominion over the Persians, whence it is that, having seen no other in that habit, And now seeing this person in it, and remembering that vision and the exhortation which I had in my dream, I believe that I bring this army under the divine conduct, and shall therewith conquer Darius, and destroy the power of the Persians, that all things will succeed according to what is in my own mind. Unbelievable, isn't it? Alexander had a vivid dream that told him to go in there, and that he would succeed. And Jadu, the high priest had a dream that told him to go out and meet Alexander. That's what Josephus says. That is in page 325 of the Antiquities of the Jews. Alexander triumphantly entered Jerusalem, accompanied by the high priest and his entire entourage, and Alexander offered sacrifice in the temple. And those two separate dreams are absolutely remarkable. The prophecy of Daniel was actually shown, by the way, to Alexander. Daniel saw, quote, Daniel 8, 5 through 7, and he goat that came from the west on the face of the whole earth, and touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him close to the ram, and he was moved with collar against him, and smote the ram, and brake his two horns, and there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground, and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Do you know, later an archangel told Daniel the meaning of that dream, Daniel eight sixteen to twenty one. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep on my face toward the ground. But he touched me and set me upright, and he said, "Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation, for at the time appointed the end shall be. The ram which you saw, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia, and the rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn that is between his eyes." is the first king. Actually, Alexander treated the priests with magnificence. And when the high priest in Jerusalem, Jadua, who had had his own dream and marched out to meet Alexander, showed Alexander how to sacrifice, you know what he did? He obtained the scroll of Daniel, and he actually unfolded it, unrolled it to the book of Daniel, to the place that we just read, where it was predicted that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, which hadn't happened yet. Alexander had besieged Tyre, then he had turned toward Jerusalem, and now he was on his way toward Persia. He was shown the prophecy of Daniel that I just read to you. So Alexander read a prophecy about himself, that had been written 200 years earlier. And there's no doubt that he was greatly encouraged by that dream and by his encounter with the high priest, and also having been shown the book of Daniel, because he marched unopposed to meet Darius near Nineveh. The Encyclopedia Britannica says, edition 11, volume 1, page 547, Quote: Alexander came within sight of the Persian host without having met any opposition since he quitted Tyre. He had now to settle the most serious problem which yet faced him, for in the plains the Persian army was formidable by sheer bulk. But Alexander's tactics proved too much for the ponderous Persian phalanx, wherein mass troops would form a human wedge with spears, swords, and shields. Alexander's horsemen and footmen launched attack after attack against the flanks in the rear of the Persians, throwing them into confusion. This was the famous battle named after Arbella, even though it was some 60 miles distant from the actual battlefield. Darius fled eastward into Media, and Alexander then marched on Babylon, Susa, and into modern-day Iran, discovering the treasure houses of the Persian Empire and looting them. In the overthrow of the Persian Empire, Alexander was aided by the chance, and you wonder about that, lunar eclipse of the 20th of September, 331 B.C., in the spring of 331, Alexander could at last leave the Mediterranean, and this is from the Encyclopedia Britannica, again on page 547. He could at last leave the Mediterranean to strike into the heart of the Persian Empire, for by his occupation of the coast, the Persian command of the sea had inevitably collapsed. Returning through Syria and stopping at Tyre, that is from Gaza and Egypt, to make final arrangements for the conquered provinces, He traversed Mesopotamia and struck the Tigris some four marches above the site of Nineveh. It was near Nineveh that Darius the Mede was waiting with the immense host which a supreme effort could muster from all parts of his empire. The happy coincidence of a lunar eclipse gives us the 20th of September, 331, as the exact day on which the Macedonian army crossed the Tigris River. Alexander came within sight of the Persian host without having met any opposition since he quitted Tyre. And that was according to a prophecy that Daniel wrote and that the high priest Jado in Jerusalem showed to Alexander, which actually Alexander had dreamed about before he ever left Macedonia. Like all despots, Alexander had many officers and governors throughout his kingdom who continually plotted against him. Dictators don't groom successors. Little could he know that his kingdom would be divided up into four kingdoms even before his body was buried. Daniel said, Daniel 7, 6, After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. Alexander is the leopard. The four wings of a fowl are the four generals that carved up his kingdom. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given unto it. And true to that prophecy, the kingdom was divided shortly after Alexander's death, before his body was ever even buried, into four different kingdoms by collusion and agreement between these men. Now let's take a look at the fourth beast in the time setting of Daniel, the seventh chapter. Notice how Daniel's prophecies of the fourth beast, which is identified as Rome, repeatedly culminate in the setting up of Christ's kingdom, just as the second chapter shows how the ten toes of the whole Babylonian system are smashed by the stone cut out without hands, which is the returning, conquering Christ. Daniel 7, 8-10 After describing the dreadful fourth beast with iron teeth, Daniel said, I considered the horns, that is, ten horns, and, behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And, behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, so it obviously depicts a human leader, and a horn depicts a government, a ruler of some kind, and a mouth speaking great things. I beheld till the thrones were cast down. Some scholars believe that it should read, were placed there, by the way, and I think they may be in error, but some of them do read that, which refers to Christ's kingdom in Revelation 20 and verse 4, Beheld till thrones were cast down, and then Christ's kingdom was placed, as some people believe that should read. And the Ancient of Days did sit, Daniel 7, 8-10, to 10, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. That is obviously reference to the setting up of the kingdom of God, the second coming of Christ, and the beginning of the millennium, and the time of the judgment of people. Horns are symbols of human leaders of governments. Notice that Daniel describes the Ancient of Days almost exactly as does John, who in the first chapter of the book of Revelation described Christ, "...and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment, down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters." Some commentaries think the Ancient of Days described in Daniel 7, 8 to 10 is the Father rather than Christ, because they see only the Father as conducting the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20 and verse 11. Whether it refers to Christ or the Father, it is obvious that it refers to the time of the setting up of the kingdom of God on earth and refers to divinity, either the divine member of the God family that became Jesus Christ of the New Testament, or the Father God whom Christ said that He came to reveal. It obviously refers to the setting up of the kingdom of God on earth, after the little horn succeeds in overthrowing the first of the ten succeeding kingdoms. Daniel said, quote, I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed, and given to the burning flame, Daniel 7.11. Remember. We read that exact language at the very beginning of this study in Revelation, the 19th chapter in the last half, where it says the beast was taken, the false prophet with him, and they were cast into a lake of fire by Jesus Christ himself. When is that beast slain? We read it in Revelation 19:11 and two verse 21, of how Christ is described as coming as King of kings and with the armies of heaven and both the beast and the false prophet are cast alive into a lake of fire, Revelation 19, 11-21. That graphically depicts the second coming of Christ. And the very first thing Christ is going to do is to hurl the beast and the false prophet, two evil, demoniacal, cruel human leaders, into a lake of fire. The false prophet is the infamous Antichrist. He is the head of a great false religious system. He is called the false prophet. He is the head of a religious system called Mystery, Babylon the Great, in Revelation 17 and verse 5. Now notice again how Daniel saw over and over again that fourth beast, which is Rome, and the little horn, which is the papacy. And he saw that they continued until the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ and the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. I saw in the night visions and behold one like the son of man wrote Daniel in Daniel 7:13 that's Christ came with the clouds of heaven look at Matthew 24:30 and 1 Thessalonians 4:17 and he came to the ancient of days now here the one like the son of man has got to be referenced to Christ and because he comes to the ancient of days that has got to be referenced to the Father and they brought him near before him and it was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Daniel 7, 13. So for the second time, in only five verses, Daniel's seventh chapter, which depicts the four successive world ruling empires, culminates in the second coming of Christ and the setting up of Christ's millennial reign on this earth. Notice the next example Daniel seven seventeen and eighteen. These great beasts which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the most high shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even for ever and ever. Daniel then wrote Daniel seven nineteen to twenty two. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful whose teeth were of iron, and his nails of brass, which devoured and break in pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet, and the ten horns that were in his head, and of the little horn, the other horn which came up, before whom three fell, even of of that horn that had eyes, that's the little horn, and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows, I beheld in the same horn made war with the saints, and, listen to this, prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom, Daniel 7, 19-22. There is another scripture that utterly destroys the concept of a so-called secret rapture, as the 13th chapter of Revelation does and as so many scriptures about the Great Tribulation do. This little horn That represents the false Christ, the false prophet, the Antichrist, that represents the head of a great Babylonish mystery religion system, makes war with the saints. And a part of the Great Tribulation that is depicted in the sixth and seventh, the fifth and sixth and seventh chapters of Revelation, where you see the four horsemen of the apocalypse, that is the religious martyrdom phase of the Great Tribulation, is made reference to right here. He made war with the saints. So the fourth beast is a continuing system along with the little horn that has eyes like a man who speaks great things, great pronouncements, and in one place it says he seeks to change times and laws, who persecutes God's true church, the saints. It continues along with the little horn until the setting up of God's kingdom on earth. And you can read of that, of course, in Isaiah 2, Micah 4, and Isaiah 11, as well as Revelation 20 and verse 4. Now we have seen three examples in his ancient prophecy written before the rise of the Persian empire of how the prophecy continues until the time of the second coming of Christ. Notice another one, Daniel seven twenty-three to 27. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down, and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise." And another shall arise after them. This is not chronologically, but after the manner. He shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. He shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and to think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until the time and times, and the dividing of time. That destroys the rapture theory. How long is the period of the captivity of Israel? Time, times, and half a time. Forty-two months. Three and one-half years. How long is the time of the times of the Gentiles, of the treading down of the city of Jerusalem? Three and a half years. How long is the time of Israel being in captivity? Three and one half years. How long is the time of the ministry of the two witnesses? Three and one half years. How long here is the time that the saints are persecuted and that they are given terrible, terrible trials and troubles, and some of them martyred by this great false prophet, the little horn, that will think to change times and laws, and will, quote, wear out the saints of the Most High. They shall be given into his hand until a time and times and dividing of time. It's all at the same time, which is the time of the tribulation, the heavenly signs, and the day of the Lord. But it says, The judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion, to consume and to destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion, and the greatness of the kingdom, unto the whole heaven, shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Daniel seven twenty-three to 27 And here, again, is absolute proof that the little horn which plucks up by the roots three of the first ten horns continues until the time of the second coming of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom of God on this earth. Those scriptures demonstrate that the ten horns of Daniel 7 are ten successive governments, ten revivals of the beast system down through history, and how remarkable it is that Daniel's prophecies, written 538 years before the time of Christ, should be so specifically detailed and so accurate Christ himself referred to Daniel's prophecies when he said, quote, When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Then later on, verse 21, he said, Let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains, for then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world of this time, no, nor ever shall be. Matthew 2415 22 Who or what is that little horn? What is the identity of the little horn that had eyes like a man, a mouth speaking great things that wants to change times and laws, a little horn that terribly persecutes God's people, makes war against the saints, engaging in every kind of brutality and mass murder? Referring to this little horn, or the other horn of Daniel 7, Halley's Bible Handbook says, and I quote from pages 346 and 47, The other horn which should arise among the ten horns, is a combination of the leopard beast and lamb beast of Revelation 13. The three kings which he deplaced are thought to refer to Lombards, Ravenna, and Rome. Others think it is the Ostrogoths, the Vandals, and the Heruli, but it is at least three kingdoms that temporarily had overthrown Rome and were uprooted by the popes. These kingdoms were handed over to the popes at the beginning of their temporal kingdom, and it says the other horn, in Halley's Bible handbook, possibly refers to Antichrist. There's much disagreement about which of those three governments were plucked up by the roots, but one thing is for sure. They were overthrown by the papacy. The critical and experimental commentary by Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says, quote, And the ten horns answering to the ten toes, that is chapter 241, out of this kingdom, it is out of the fourth kingdom that the ten others arise, whatever exterior territory any of them possesses, looking at Revelation 13, 1 and 17 and verse 12, where it says, and another shall arise after them. Antichrist rises after their rise, at first little, as it says in verse 8 of Daniel 7, but after destroying three of the ten, he becomes greater than them all. The three being gone, he is the eighth. And you can compare there, Revelation 17 and verse 11. A distinct head, and yet he is of the seven. As the previous world kingdoms had their representative heads, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Persia, Cyrus, Greece, Alexander, so the fourth kingdom and its antichrists shall have their evil concentrated in the one final antichrist. So it says in the critical and experimental commentary, Volume 4, page 422. Notice carefully that the time period of times, time, and half a time are mentioned in both Daniel 7.25 and Daniel 12.5-7, and that a literal three and one-half years is what is meant. That's inescapable in the book of Revelation, since its setting is during the time of the end. Some have thought in the past that the persecutions of the saints would take place during... 1,260 years of long history on the day for a year theory of Ezekiel 4 6. But there isn't any doubt whatsoever, be that as it may, if that time is past, that a literal three and one half years is the period of ascendancy for the latter day beast and the image of the beast. That's exactly what it says in Revelation 13 and verse 1 that we read at the very beginning of this study. Notice what it says in Revelation 13 and some of the excerpts of the verses from 1 through 7. I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death. This was the collapse of the Roman Empire in 476 A.D. And his deadly wound was healed. That was the restoration of the Roman Empire in 554 A.D. And all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast. That's worship of Satan the devil, even in counterfeit, if not directly. And they worshipped the beast. So that is state worship saying, Who is like unto the beast, who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, just like we read back in the book of Daniel. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. That's exactly three and one-half years. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them." When does this happen? During the three and one-half years of the Tribulation. These are not some other saints. The Bible is not speaking of two different groups of saints. It's not saying some of the saints or most of the saints are wafted up into heaven and the rest of the saints are down here to be persecuted by the false Christ, the false prophet, by the beast power that is controlled by the symbolic woman, which is a great false church and literally standing for the false prophet or the Antichrist, its human physical head. No, they're here. Saints are saints. And the, he is to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. That's Revelation 13, one through 7. And as you can see, that is absolutely nothing short of state worship. It's a gigantic socioeconomic, military, and industrial power that evokes awe and worship among its citizens, which rises to such power and prestige that it's truly a world power. That's the description of John, which saw in vision the final end-time beast which embodies all the strongest characteristics of the first three beasts of Babylon, Persia, and Greco-Macedonia. And who is the spokesman for that system? Who is it that blasphemes God and persecutes God's people? Revelation thirteen eleven, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. Here is a government which appears outwardly Christ-like, for it has lamb-like characteristics, yet it speaks as directly motivated by Satan. It says, Revelation 19, uh, 13, 12, rather, and he exercises all the power of the first beast before him. That's Revelation 13 and verse 12. So this lamb-like beast, which is counterfeit Christianity, utilizes the economic, industrial, and military power of the civil government, the first beast of Revelation 13, which is the end-time beast which will fight Christ at His coming. Look at Revelation 19, verses 19 and 20, which we've looked at before. And causeth the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. That's ancient civil Rome, that's state worship. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. That reminds us of... 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter, and the great false prophet that is going to sit in the temple of God saying that he is God, and he says that they ought to make a replica, an image of the beast, which had the wound by the sword and did live. What is that image of the beast? It is a copy of the ancient civil Roman government that is put together into an ecclesiastical government which still has the Great Diocese, the Lesser Diocese, which has the Collegia, or the College of Cardinals, and is obviously an ecclesiastical government under a human leader. Writing of the Papacy, Halley says this, The Papacy is an Italian institution. It arose on the ruins of the Roman Empire in the name of Christ, occupying the throne of the Caesars, a revival of the image of the Roman Empire, inheriting the spirit thereof. The ghost of the Roman Empire come to life in the garb of Christianity. The popes, Halley said, have mostly been Italians. This is on Halley's Bible Handbook, page 783. The papacy's methods, it brought itself to power through the prestige of Rome and the name of Christ, and by shrewd political alliances and by deception and by armed force and by armed force and bloodshed has maintained itself in power. Papal revenues, he said, through a large part of its history, the papacy by the sale of ecclesiastical offices and its shameless traffic in indulgences has received vast revenues that enabled it to maintain for much of the time the most luxurious court in Europe. And by the way, the lengthy article by Halleck pages 757 to page 804, is well worth your reading because it represents, in a brief synopsis, the gradual development of the Roman Catholic Church. It lists all the popes from the time when the Bishop of Rome began to assert sole power over the Church in about 500 A.D. and up to the modern time, and explores the Protestant Reformation. Now we know that the fourth great beast, with iron teeth, represents the Roman Empire from its founding until the time of the end, when a final ten-nation resurrection of the same system will fight Christ at His coming. Rome was founded, according to historical legend, by Romulus, and Romulus' name, when you add up the Roman numerical value of the letters, adds up to 666. So does the word Latinos. L-A-T-E-I-N-O-S, which became the common language of the Roman Empire. It adds up the 666. It became the language of the great universal church, which has its seat in Rome. Romulus was represented as the son of Mars by the Vestal Rhea Silvia, or Elia, who was the daughter of Numitor. And Romulus was the twin of Remus, as you know, according to the fable, the picture of the wolves, and so on. The legend has it they were placed in a trough and cast into the Tiber River by their grandfather. The trough then allegedly ground in the marshes and makes one think of Moses, doesn't it, and the Pharaoh's daughter. It ground under a wild fig tree, and two children were, then according to a myth, suckled by a she-wolf. You've probably seen pictures of that in the past in some history books, and allegedly fed by a woodpecker. There's a massive amount of literature available about the Roman Empire, of course. From the founding of the city of Rome through history and the present, one could spend his entire life researching it and never begin to read it all. If you study, however, what Halley says, pages 757 to 804, you'll have a very good feel for the development of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, look at the ten-horned beast of the Apocalypse. John saw a woman sitting astride a monstrous beast. Notice how he described what he saw. Revelation 16.1 There came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials of God, that is, of God's wrath, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, the colors of harlotry, of course, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth, Revelation 17one 5 The woman symbolizes a great false church, a church which rules over kings and governments, a church which has political intercourse with the civil governments of this world. She has daughters which came out of her that are also called harlots. As we saw in Daniel 7, the little horn was depicted as continually making war with the saints. John wrote Revelation 17 and verse 6, I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. That means awe or shock or fear, not, of course, approval. Many, many books, just like Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is not good bedtime reading, Hislop's Two Babylons, detail the sickening facts of centuries of murders and persecutions that have occurred. Halley says this in Halley's Bible Handbook, page 776, quote, Innocent III, 1198 to 1216, the most powerful of the Popes, claimed to be Vicar of Christ, Vicar of God, Supreme Sovereign over the Church and the world. CLAIMED THE RIGHT TO DEPOSE KINGS AND PRINCES, AND ALL THINGS ON EARTH AND IN HEAVEN AND IN HELL ARE SUBJECT TO THE VICAR OF CHRIST. INCREDIBLE LANGUAGE, ISN'T IT? Do YOU EVER REALLY WONDER WHY IT SAYS SPEAKING BLASPHEMIES? LISTEN TO WHAT HALLEY SAYS. HE BROUGHT THE CHURCH INTO SUPREME CONTROL OF THE STATE. THE KINGS OF GERMANY, FRANCE, ENGLAND, AND PRACTICALLY ALL THE MONARCHS OF EUROPE OBEYED HIS WILL. He even brought the Byzantine Empire under his control, never in history, has any one man exerted more power. He ordered two crusades. He decreed transubstantiation, confirmed auricular confession, declared that Peter's successor can never in any way depart from the Catholic faith. He declared papal infallibility. He condemned the Magna Carta, which, of course, is at the very basis of our freedoms today, when King John was made to sign it, and is at the basis of of a democratic or a representative system of government. He forbade the reading of the Bible in the vernacular. He ordered the extermination of heretics. He instituted the Inquisition. He ordered the massacre of the Albigenses. More blood, Halley says on page 776, was shed under his direction, the direction of Innocent III, and that of his immediate successors than in any other period in church history except in the papacy's effort to crush the Reformation in the 16th and 17th centuries. One would think Nero the beast had come to life in the name of the Lamb. Halley's Bible Handbook, page 776. Writing of the infamous Inquisition. Halley states on the next page, 777. The Inquisition was the main agency in the papacy's effort to crush the Reformation. It is stated that in the thirty years between 1540 and 1570, no fewer than 900,000 Protestants were put to death in the Pope's war for the extermination of the Baldenses. Think of monks and priests in holy garments, directing with heartless cruelty and inhuman brutality the work of torturing and burning alive innocent men and women, and doing it in the name of Christ by the direct order. of of the so-called Vicar of Christ, Halley, page 777. God's Word prophesies an end-time martyrdom of saints, a time in the future when the abomination of desolation will be seated in the holy place, Jerusalem, a time when Jerusalem will be surrounded with armies and the Great Tribulation will have begun. And you ought to write for your copy of my booklet entitled The Great Tribulation and really come to understand it. Daniel's visions, those of John, show without a shadow of a doubt that an end-time resurrection of ten nations is going to take place in the same territory occupied by the Holy Roman Empire. The power is going to arise in Europe. It is not a Middle Eastern power, it is not Russia, it is going to arise in exactly the same territory where it always held sway, and it will be in collusion with the leader of a great false universal church. There will be a super dictator over ten nations, and there will be a great false prophet, and the two will be in complete collusion together. Today, that final beast of the apocalypse has not yet emerged. It is ready to form. There are things happening behind the scenes that are actually leading in that direction. What will bring about the placing of the abomination of desolation? What events in the Middle East will cause the Jews to build a temple? There are many organizations that want to do so. Gershon Solomon, who we interviewed on our television program, the leader of the Temple Mount Faithful, wanted to lay a cornerstone that began the Intifada many, many years ago. You know that there are great events that have occurred recently in the Middle East. The assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, the election of the new Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has led toward tremendous unrest among the Arabs, and there could be a war ahead without too much more delay in the Middle East. Well, for many decades, my father and I both, my father before me and I ever since, have warned of where all of the rebuilding of Germany would eventually lead. We spoke of the reunification of Germany for decades. We talked about the creation of a United States of Europe back in the 1950s. Throughout the decade of the 60s and 70s, we said Germany would rise from the ashes of defeat and once again become the dominant power in Europe. That has happened. Never in history has there been anything like the incredible collapse of the former Soviet Union and the toppling of communist governments in East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Hungary, Romania, and Yugoslavia in rapid-fire succession within only months. It was a staggering series of events, and yet most people have already forgotten it. When I knew the Berlin Wall was coming down, I rushed to Germany to do a special television program, several of them. I began writing from Berlin, a special edition for our magazine, which was published in January 1990, entitled, New Order Coming in Germany, and you can have that same article. In a little booklet form, it's been reprinted, very important, entitled, The United States of Europe, How Soon. When the Western Allies began rebuilding Germany as a bulwark against world communism, and during all those years of the Cold War, we were saying war between Russia and the United States is not going to happen. We were saying Russia is not the beast. The beast is going to arise in Europe. And we were saying that the beast is going to be in collusion with a false prophet and they are going to fulfill these biblical prophecies time and time and time again and in many different booklets and many different articles in hundreds of radio broadcasts and television programs we've repeated that very same fact we've seen now that Daniel the second chapter in verse 44 depicts Jesus Christ as the stone that is cut out without hands smashing ten nations and replacing them to establish His kingdom on this earth. We have seen in Revelation 17, 12-14 to 14, that there are ten nations united together that give their power and their strength unto the beast who are going to fight Christ at His coming. Now let's look a little bit of a summary here. Look at a little bit of a summary. There are ten governments, that are to receive absolute despotic power as kings for a short time with the beast. They are in complete agreement, and they give their power and their strength to the beast. These comprise the famous beast of the apocalypse. They are the very final beast of Bible prophecy and world history, and they will fight Christ at His coming, and will be utterly destroyed. That these also are depicted by the ten toes of Daniel's second chapter is simply indisputable. Now, where on earth will you look to find the successors to the historical beast power of prophecy? In all cases, in all places, and at all times, the beast power has been in collusion with a great false religious system, which is a false Christian religion. It is not Shintoist, it is not Taoist, it is not Confucianist, it is not Buddhist, and it is not Islamic. It is not a false Mohammed or a false Buddha. It is a false Christ which is going to be in collusion with the beast. Where on this earth will you look to find the successors to the historical beast power of prophecy? the beast power that held sway from the time of Christ and long before, throughout the Middle Ages, down until the time of World War II. You can't find the answer anywhere in the Oriental world, because the beast power is controlled by the great harlot woman, which is a false Christ, a false Christian system. It's a counterfeit Christian religion. It's not Buddhist, rather, or Islamic, or animistic, or anything else. Some are speculating wildly that the... Beast is an Arab leader, or maybe he is a Korean, or maybe he's Japanese, or maybe it's even the United States government that is the Beast. This is absolute nonsense and will not stand the test of the truth of prophecy in history. Always, from the time of the emergence of the four beasts, the fourth beast, of course, which was Rome, the beast power has always been in Europe. In most of history, it was a Germanic kingdom, as is clearly shown and proven by history. It was always a nominal Christian system under the Popes of Rome. And, of course, Halley's himself even says so, as I've said time and again. It is not only my father before me and I that believe this. It is quite a number of the Bible commentaries and other Bible handbooks and the like. Now, we know that we are nearing the time of Jacob's trouble, that we are nearing the time of the building of a temple and the setting up of the abomination of desolation. We also know that that's going to be the time of terrible duress and a time of national trouble and trial for the United States and for Britain. If you haven't yet read my book entitled Europe and America in Prophecy and study especially the chapter on Germany in Prophecy, then you need to get that. If you have not read my book entitled The Great Tribulation, you need to get that. And you also need to get another brochure that we have for you entitled, Will a Temple Soon Be Built in Jerusalem? Now, finally, remember Jesus' words in Matthew 24:21: For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world of this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But, he said, for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. We need to make sure we are one of the elect. Remember the work of the watchman, Ezekiel crying out as a symbol of the work of God, as a type of the work of God in the end time. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Ezekiel 33:11. And remember what Jesus said in Luke 21 and verse 36. Watch you therefore. And pray always that you might be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Now you know what is the beast of biblical prophecy, of biblical history, the beast of Daniel 4, 7, and 11, the beast of Revelation 13 and 17, the beast of the Apocalypse or the book of Revelation. It is a ten-nation combined that will arise in Central Europe, that will be in direct collaboration and collusion with a great false Christ, the Antichrist, a great false prophet, and it will seriously affect the United States of America and all of the Western world, the whole world for that matter. I leave you with a final little limerick that might be interesting to you, because it does apply to what we've been talking about in this study. There once was a lady from Niger who smiled as she rode on a tiger. They returned from the ride with the lady inside, and the smile on the face of the tiger. A woman is to ride the beast, but the beast is eventually going to hate the whore and make her desolate. Read Revelation, the 18th chapter. I hope you've enjoyed this study into history and prophecy and a little glimpse as to what the future might bring. Thank you for listening. Be sure to call or write for any of that other literature You need to read it. Until next time, this is Garner Ted Armstrong. Goodbye, friends.